into a pretty controversial topic. Father, again, I just want to ask, Lord, that you would fill this place with the Holy Spirit. I want to pray, Lord, that you would open up the scriptures to us. Lord, I pray that you teach through me. In Jesus' name, amen. As you know, we're in a series called Hard Questions, Honest Answers. And uh, we are addressing some questions that the congregation gave to me uh, this past summer. And this morning, we're looking at the question, uh, what was God thinking when he created sex? Not too controversial a topic. So let me, let's just tangle into it. Uh, since the early 1960s, uh, American culture has radically shifted its views on sexuality. Uh, in the 60s, there were two views. One was a traditional view based upon a Judeo-Christian cultural consensus, and the other was an emerging worldview that rejected all of that and said, what do you mean Judeo-Christian moral consensus? We get to do whatever we want to do. What was interesting about the 60s and the 70s is that both those views seem to be held in legitimacy within our culture. You take this view, you take this view, both are legitimate views, you can hold your views, we will respect those views, we won't dis we'll disagree with it, but we'll respect those things. Um, however, that began to change, as you well know. And if you've read any of the biographies of rock icons like Jerry Garcia or Keith Richards, you name them, Graham Nash, David Crosby, you can see how the sex, sexual revolution was fueled big time within pop culture. The tide continued to change. And in 2005, Tom Wolfe, who is a very, very astute observer of American culture, wrote the book called I Am Charlotte Simmons. He looks at a college campus uh, called DuPont University, which is uh, actually Duke University in real life, and he's looking at the sex, sexual habits of college students. And Wolf makes it abundantly clear that by the year 2005, uh, the Judeo-Christian moral view was, was way on the way out. It was chastised, it was belittled, it was caricatured as quaint and weird, but that was 2005, and this is 10 years later. And 10 years later, um, we have seen a radically different situation where you embrace the biblical position on sexuality and it's compared to, to racism. It's, uh, it's like you've embraced uh, a, a hate crime or something like that. Sorry, this is... And so <clears throat> it's, uh, it's completely different even than it was in the year 2005. And, you know, recently we've seen things like the normalization, the normalization of pornography where Google estimates that one in five searches on mobile phones are for porn. Um, we've seen the normalization of gender options. Facebook had 58 options last year. This year it's 71. Um, we're seeing the normalization of virtual reality sex and robotic sex. And even members of the sex addiction therapist community 
are sounding the alarm. And they're saying, we are seeing addictions layered upon addictions that make recovery extremely complicated and treatment elongated. They're sounding the warning. So what happened to the Judeo-Christian worldview so dominant 50 years ago? It's vanished. And, and within the culture, it's, it's, it's gone. And in some ways, the truly radical position is to go back to what the Bible says. Why is it radical? It's radical because, number one, a lot of Christians don't really understand what the Bible says. And the Bible has a lot to say about sexuality. And number two, because what people are saying who are writing about this in the academic community is this. There is a lot of angst and pain and feelings of being distraught out there in the culture, largely rooted to the prevailing cultural views on sexuality. So I want to unpack that this morning. And to do that, we are going to ask and answer four questions. And the first question is the worldview question. And the question is, is human sexuality created or is it constructed? Is it created or is it constructed? Now, now let's talk about this for a second. If human sexuality is constructed, that'll take us back to the Darwinian worldview. And it's the idea that sexuality changes with the times. What was right in 1916 might be different in 2016. What's right in Okinawa is going to be different in Oklahoma. So let's say for the sake of argument that Darwin was right and the Darwinian position on evolution is true. That means life sprang into existence about 4.5 million years ago. And since then, according to the theory, all species emerge through natural selection, through genetic mutation, or through genetic drift. Now, fast forward multiple millions of years, and now we see the rise of humans. And humans are gendered. There is maleness and there is femaleness. Did a divine being guide that process according to the classic Darwinian theory? No. No, the only thing fueling the process was time plus chance. Therefore, if that's the case, is there any transcendent meaning to our gender or any transcendent meaning to our sexuality? And the answer to that question is no, there wouldn't be. According to the logical extension of the theory, the two-gender concept of sexuality did make sense in the old days. It made sense. And the reason why it made sense was that ancient families needed kids to till the land. Not only that, they needed the kids for economic survival, but it was a morality based upon societal need. So what now? Now that the times have changed, uh, how does it work? Well, the morality changes with it. Because if kids are not an economic necessity and we don't need monogamous heterosexual marriage to protect survival, then maybe the morality around our sexuality can change. That's the worldview that has been widely embraced and perpetrated within the culture. We have more money. 
We don't, we don't need monogamy anymore. We don't need heterosexual marriage anymore. Any, anything can go. We can have a wide variety of genders, maybe even 71 options to choose from. If we are the product of unguided evolution, then our sexuality and the morality around it can change with the times. However, what if the reverse is true? What if our sexuality is created? So let's say there's an infinite personal God out there who created human beings in his image. That would be a total game changer with regard to our sexuality. Because what we would then do is say, well, well what is our creator's viewpoint on sexuality? Why did he design it the way that he did? Why did he design it with an intricate biological complexity the way that he did? And how do we use this in a way that is consistent with his plans? Biologically, of course, there are two genders. For the past 6,000 years, natural law theory, beginning with Aristotle going through Augustine and Aquinas and, and so many others, have developed ideas about how life is supposed to work based upon natural law theory, in part based upon the obvious understanding that there is male and there is female. But the Bible preceding that shows us the reality of maleness and femaleness created in the image of God. So those are the two options. Two options are sexuality is a social construct or sexuality is created. And we look to the creator to tell us, how is this supposed to work? So that um, is pretty controversial. And it's controversial even among minor institutions within our society. Here's uh, an article called Frequently Challenged Books from the American Library Association. So it's a list. And number six on the list is the Bible. Now, the ALA puts this out every year, um, and uh, this year it's, it's number six. And why is it number six? Eric Metaxas writes an article about this, and, and it's number six, he says, because of its religious viewpoint regarding sexuality. Um, it's regarded as one of the most dangerous books out there because of its viewpoint on sexuality. Obviously, the culture has changed. So that leads to the purpose question. And the purpose question is if, if God created sex, what's the purpose? Why, why did he create this? It's the, the purpose question. Um, I want to show five purposes based upon the Bible, and we'll start off with purpose number one. God created our sexuality to give a, the human race a visual picture about God. So Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says this, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In this passage, what we see is evidence of plurality within the nature of God. We know from the rest of, of Scripture that God is one as to his being. He is one in his essence. There is one God and only one God. However, 
um, that plural phrase, let us make, reveals that within God's singularity, there is a plurality of persons. And that plurality of persons has been in a relationship from all eternity. And this makes the Christian faith radically different than every other faith out there. Because what it says is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been living in a perfect love relationship for all eternity. They are perfected and have been perfected in love for all eternity. That means you could say that God is the ultimate lover. There's nothing about love that the God of the universe does not know. So consequently, we humans who are created in, in his image, according to this passage, we in our sexuality have the capacity to mirror something about the triune God. Now, I find that incredible because sex is crafted by God so that two diverse human beings can enter into a one flesh act. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one as to their essence. God creates human beings, male and female, who have the capacity physically to join and become one in a one flesh act. It is a picture of God being one divine essence and yet subsisting as three persons. But notice, but notice that biblical lovemaking is a Trinitarian act. There is a husband, there is a wife, there is a spirit of love that permeates the sexual intimacy of a couple. In a healthy relationship, healthy sexual relationship, healthy intimate relationship, there's almost an aura of that love. There's almost a spirituality to that love. And therefore, when God designs our sexuality, he designs it so that it is a mirror, it is a picture of what the triune God is like. So yes, that question, well, are people really thinking um, along those lines? I'll tell you about a recent book uh, called The Great Good Thing. This is a fabulous book. Andrew Clavin is, uh, grew up a secular uh, Jew in New York. At his bar mitzvah at age 13, he said, forget about it. I don't buy into this stuff. For 35 years, he was an agnostic. Wrote a lot of really great books. And then he began to reason this way. He said, you know, ironically, here I am, an agnostic, and I feel like I have this incredible marriage with my wife of 37 years. A great marriage. And he said, I started thinking about our marriage and the love that I encounter with my wife. And I said to myself, there has to be a source of love that goes beyond what we have. What we have can't be all there is. There's got to be something beyond what we've encountered. What is that? And one day, he's reading a Patrick O'Brien novel about, about the Napoleonic War. And one of the characters in that novel begins to pray. And he spontaneously prays that same prayer to God. And he says, it was really awkward because I'm an agnostic. But I'm an agnostic coming to God and coming to Christ because I recognize 
there must be a source of love beyond what my wife and I experience. Because what my wife and I have is good, almost spiritual as to its capacity. Well, that's how God designed our sexuality to take place. That as good as the act of lovemaking is, it's designed to point to something greater, and that is to the source of love itself. Purpose number one of God crafting our sexuality and giving sex as a gift is that it might be a pointer to the person of God. Here's a second purpose. Second purpose is that our sexuality gives the human race a visual picture of the love of Christ. So <clears throat> here's what Paul says in Ephesians 5, uh, beginning in verse 28. In the same way you husbands should love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, just so far, what Paul is talking about is he's talking about the marriage relationship, and obviously he's talking about the sexual relationship within marriage. Well, then Paul makes a jump theologically from the physical sexual relationship between a husband and a wife now to something transcendent and big. He says, this mystery is profound. What mystery? Well, the mystery of sexual union. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it, it also refers to Christ and the church. So now what he's saying is that sexuality is, is not just a pointer to the triune God. Sexuality is a pointer to the nature of the relationship between Jesus and and his church. Well, how much does Jesus love his church? And with what sort of passion does he love his church? Well, he loves his church like a groom loves his bride on their wedding night. There is a joyfulness, an exuberance about his love for the church. Like a groom would have on his wedding night, like a bride would have experience, uh, experiencing the groom on, on her wedding night. What this saying is that human sexuality is not just the random product of evolution. It's designed for a transcendent purpose. It's designed to give us a picture of the joyful love that Jesus has for his bride, the church. Now, I want you to think about what these first two purposes tell us. Look, no doubt, sex is fun. It is enjoyable. It is a gift. However, God did not design the gift merely as an end in itself. Now, it works as an existential joy for sure, but he didn't design it as an end in itself. He designed it to be a pointer to something true about the nature of the universe, the reality of love within the triune God, the reality of the love that Jesus has the church. When we make it an end in itself, it becomes about me. It becomes about my needs. It becomes about who I am. It becomes about me comparing myself perhaps with the culture. And in that 
Sex, sex and sexuality can be uh, selfish, addictive, empty, and burdensome. Sometimes I'll read memoirs and articles of those who write about recovery from sex addiction. And they say that while in the throes of their addiction, they longed for genuine connection. They longed for it. And yes, there was that brief flash of pleasure, and then came the emptiness. Like what I thought would provide the fullness didn't provide me with the fullness. So how do I go out getting the fullness? And they described how the cycle of addiction began to grow. Sex in marriage is not about me selfishly getting what I crave. It's about me giving something and loving someone in the context of a committed, unconditional love relationship. That leads us to the third purpose. And the third purpose goes back to Genesis 1.28. It's to empower the human race to procreate with purpose. So, Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, one point of this is obvious, and that is God created sex so that kids could be brought into the world. And this is where um, natural law theory has had a lot to say about this. It is obvious looking at male and female bodies that there is a complementarity to those bodies at three levels. Uh, level number one, at the macro level, obviously our reproductive organs are anatomically complementary. They fit. At the cellular level, reproductive cells are complementary and obviously designed for coupling. At the subcellular level, we have genetic material that enable a new human being uh, to be crafted and created in the image of the parents. So here's in God's design the incredible thing. What, what God says to humans is, I'm going to give you a gift that allows you to do what I do. I create human beings in my image. Now I give you as a couple the power to create human beings in your image. That's designed to be a powerful gift that allows couples to feel a sense of the creative wonder of the God of the universe. What's not so obvious in Genesis 1.28 at first glance is that this sentence contains commands. Um, in other words, husbands and wives are commanded together to embrace God's vision of regular lovemaking. God says essentially to Adam and Eve, I want you to enjoy a robust, abundant sex life. I want you to enjoy this. These are commands given to the wife and the husband. Together, they're commanded individually to take responsibility for the health of the sexual relationship within their marriage. Well, okay, so, so what's the purpose in Genesis 1? 28. Well, the purpose is that they are going to expand the domain of their leadership. And one of the things that procreation does is, is it expands the domain 
of our leadership. Now, I, I just have to tell you, by, by God's grace, I am thankful for where my wife and I are right now. Um, we have four kids. We have four sons and daughters-in-law. We have, we have eight grandkids. When we get together, assuming we all get together in the same place, there are 18 people that get together. By God's grace, our kids are thriving. Our grandkids seem to be thriving. I, I'm thankful for that. But I, I want you to think about what, that, what that's done for my wife and I. It has expanded our sphere of leadership. Now, you know, because you know me, that there were seasons where, oh boy, was it challenging for us and our kids. It was really challenging. And we went through some, some challenging times. But what God did through our kids was he expanded our ability to provide leadership. That's what, that's what children do. They expand, they humble you, and they expand your ability to provide leadership. But part of what God is saying is, I am crafting and creating this gift of sexuality so that, yes, there will be pleasure in the moment, but that so also you will have the opportunity to grow, develop, mature as a person. Now, let's take it to the fourth purpose. Now we come to the pleasure part. In, in Song of Solomon 4, 10 through 15, uh, the Song of Solomon is, is written as a book of the Bible that to explicitly describe the joys of lovemaking, of sexuality. Song of Solomon chapter 4 is an incredibly explicit description of their wedding night, but it's cast in beautiful poetic terms so that um, it's, it's appropriate. Let me just give you kind of a... a description of the, of the overall chapter. Uh, the wedding ceremony is over. The couple is alone. The door is locked. Now they're beginning to consummate their marriage. So the husband begins to praise his wife, and he begins with her head, and he goes down to her legs and to her hips, praising her hair, her beautiful teeth, her graceful neck. All the while, he's using terms that would have been highly appropriate given the culture that they are in. And then in verse 12, he praises her virginity. And he says that she is like a locked garden to everyone else but him. She has reserved herself for him and him alone. And then with exceptional, poetically sensitive metaphors, he asks if he might gently consummate the marriage. In the process... He describes his emotions, and, and here's what he says. How beautiful you are is your love, my sister, my bride. Now, just time out for a second. Sister? <laughs> wait, wait, wait a second. <laughs> uh, in the ancient world, sister was an affectionate term for a wife. We use the terms of endearment like sweetheart, honey, babe, sugar, love, dear, and probably half a dozen other popular ones. That was our culture. Their culture, it was sister. So he continues, how much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? Your lips 
drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. He's kissing her, kissing her deeply, lip to lip, tongue to tongue. And it's obvious that he's intoxicated with her love. He calls her love like wine. This is a poetic description of sexual love. And there is an intoxication in this chapter. And clearly a huge purpose of sexual intimacy in God's eyes is the pleasure that would come from bodily connection. So yeah, sexuality has its transcendent purposes, but it is also built for pleasure. The way our bodies are created, the nerve receptors on our sex organs, it's obvious that sexuality was created as something that would be enjoyed. Moreover, we know now that sex fosters commitment days after the sex is over. Um, one of the most watched TED Talks on YouTube features a psychologist urging married couples to continue in a strong sexual relationship even as they move into their older years. Why? Because she describes the connection between sex and oxytocin. Oxytocin is the bonding hormone that comes up about in when moms breastfeed their kids or when there is sexual intercourse. And she talks about the biochemistry of oxytocin and how that generates warm, loving, positive feelings hours, days after the intercourse is over. Clearly, God designed sex to be pleasurable. And then that leads to a fifth purpose. Uh, it provides a foretaste of something better. And that, that foretaste is heaven. So, Here's Revelation chapter 16. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Now, I won't go into all the, the theology behind this, but part of what's going on here is that the writer of Revelation, John, is describing the fact that right now, in our relationship with Jesus, we are engaged to Christ. We're engaged to him. The Holy Spirit has become our engagement ring. When we get to heaven, we who know Christ will experience the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at that point, our relationship to Jesus will be consummated, so to speak, and we will be fully enveloped into the eternal love of the triune God. But notice what's obvious about this illustration. The obvious about thing about this is that marital intimacy on earth is a foretaste of what we encounter, what we experience in heaven. We human beings have deep longings. These are longings for for food, for relationships, for sex, for sleep, for relationships, and so on. We have deep, these deep longings. And we all know that our deep longings are not going to be fulfilled this side of the grave. C.S. Lewis put it this way. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us 
are longings in which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. There was something we grasped at in the first moment of longing, which just faded with reality. What John is saying in Revelation is that even in our sexuality, there is a longing that extends beyond what we encounter in sexual intercourse. That is a pointer, a pathway to something that we will encounter in heaven. N.T. Wright puts it a little bit different way. He says, our natural desires for justice and spirituality and relationships and beauty are indications of a reality that exists beyond the finite things of this world. God crafted this incredibly powerful gift in part as a foretaste for something even more powerful in heaven. So let's think back on what these are. It's a picture of the eternal love relationship in the Trinity. It's a picture of Christ's love for the church. It's a biological gift that brings children to the world. It's a physical and neurological force for pleasure and bonding. It's a foretaste of something only satisfied in heaven. Now, why do we spend so much time spelling out these five purposes? Because if you understand these purposes, it gives you a profound way to navigate some of the ethical cultures within our world about gender, about same-sex marriage, about all sorts of other politically correct things that are happening in our world. If you know the purposes, it gives you some way of thinking about how you are going to decide. How do I, as a believer in Christ, align with these purposes that are contained in the Scriptures? Well, that leads to the, the third question, which is the boundary question. If this is such a great gift, wh why did God put margins around it? Well, that he put margins around it is pretty clear. 1 Thessalonians 4, 2-5. For you know what instructions we gave to the Lord Jesus, to you through the Lord Jesus. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality and that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul's addressing two alternative ways of thinking. He says, all right, you Thessalonians who are Christ followers, I want to assert the boundaries around the sexual relationship. You have that possibility of living within those boundaries. You also have the possibility of living just like the world is living, like they were living in Thessalonica, like they live today, uh, not respecting the boundaries of this God-given gift that we have been getting. And Paul's statement is very strong. He says, this is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So why the boundaries? Why the boundaries? The principle is this. The greater the gift, the greater the protection of the gift. I'll, I'll give, you, give you an example from my, my college days. I had a friend who had a beat-up guitar, had it in the fraternity house, didn't care about what happened to it. It was lying around the dorm room, just no big deal. He then gets a high-end Martin guitar. And you'd have thought this thing was worth several million dollars. He did not let anybody touch this, including me. Oh, he let me use it sometimes. But he was very cautious about it. There were boundaries around this exceptional, extraordinary gift. 
because it was so valuable. Give you another example. Um, this viola is worth $45 million. I went to the source, multiple sources to confirm this. This source I checked was Bloomberg. Stradivarius was a phenomenal violin player. I don't know how you get a $45 million violin. I don't know where the value is in there. I mean, they're amazing, I know. But So one day, I'm, one year, Cindy and I are at OK Mozart, and, uh, and I go up to the violin player uh, who had just done this solo, and I shake her hand. And, oh boy, I, 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 I'm shaking like the hand of somebody who has got this extraordinary gift. Better be careful. I said, I said, so what do you do with your violin when you're, when you're not playing? She says, oh, it's with an armed guard. He never lets it out of her sight. So what's the principle? The principle is the greater the gift, the more you respect the boundaries associated with the value in that gift. God has created an astonishing asset. With our sexuality, you bring your own flesh and blood into the world. You build new character. You enjoy pleasure in the moment and bonding that lasts for days. You grow in anticipation for God himself. This is an extraordinary gift. What God says is, I am putting boundaries around this gift so that it can be used in the way that I, your creator, have intended for it to be used. Part of that boundary is the boundary associated with the holiness of God. If this gift is designed to enable us to see God see Christ's love for the church, get a foretaste for heaven. Boundaries need to be set in place. If this gift is a gift that is joyful and abundant and good, then the boundaries are designed to increase the joy of that gift. Um, at another level, the boundary is there for physical protection. For over 30 years, Dr. Paul Church was medical school professor at Harvard University. He was a urologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. He had an area of expertise that Harvard valued, and that area was the physical diseases which come through the misuse of sexuality. And Church was doing a lot of academic work in this. But the time came when he was an irritant to the political correctness that was associated with that institution. And they said, tone it down. And Church said, look, I've I'm, I'm wor been working on this thing for, for decades. There's scientific literature behind this. I'm not going to tone it down. This is my field. And he was terminated. Terminated. But that's the ethos of our culture. Um, boundaries around sexuality are designed to protect us for the transcendent purposes of God and for the diseases that come from sexual immorality that hardly anybody ever talks about these days. Not politically correct to do so. God also puts boundaries around it for our emotional and psychological protection, and I don't have the time to go into this thoroughly. When I read scientific studies, I'm always asking the question, who wrote it, why'd they write it, who benefits from the results, and who got the money? And there are many scientific studies that I just kind of say, okay, that probably is not really objective. 
What I'm looking for these days are good peer-reviewed scientific studies that talk about the benefits of married sexuality. And they are out there in abundance these days. You can search for them. It, they're a little bit difficult to find. And you want to be careful of the search terms you use on the internet. But one of the things that is being written about extensively right now is the fact that those who encounter the best sex are generally those who are married, who work at it, and who strive to create an environment of unconditional love in their relationship. Final question, briefly, so what? What do you do with this? Well, I want to say, first of all, that we start with the conviction about grace and truth. And starting with truth is important when you have a very, very valuable gift. And I think it's important to start with truth and just to say, okay, God, what do you say and how can I accept this without rationalizing it away? I want to start with what you say. We might agree with the boundaries. We might disagree with the boundaries. We might be in process about whether we agree or disagree. But at least we ought to wrestle over what does this say? And what do I do with this personally? Um, I'll tell you that the emerging ethos among many followers of Christ is that, oh, I don't want to even go there. I don't want to go there. Because if I do, I'm going to be ridiculed by the world. Uh, there's a new book that came out by Ashley, by Broomley McClenahan called Good Christian Sex, Why Chastity Isn't the Only Option and Other Things the Bible Says About Sex. She's a pastor of a church. She believes that God's word is important, but it's not really God's word. It's biblical commands can be updated, and she has updated all of those commands to today has no real problem with sex outside of marriage just as long as you do it the right way a lot of people are gravitating to that i just want to say as a follower of christ it's important to look objectively about what does this say and wrestle with what you do about what it says you start with truth you quickly follow up with grace and ask the question okay lord uh if i've fallen short what do i do with that and uh, all of us are fallen human beings. Our fallenness extends to every area of our life, including the sexual area. And that means everyone in this room has encountered sexual brokenness at some level. Everyone, without exception. Even people who say, I haven't done anything wrong. I've never done anything wrong. E even there, um, there you're, you're a fallen human being. And everyone... Everyone encounters sexual brokenness at some level. So affirm the truth, but quickly follow up with the grace that says, God is the forgiver and healer of my life. And then sometimes you've got to just combine the two and, and celebrate the two together because it's important for us to live in that grace-truth paradigm in our own life and in the lives of people with whom we are in relationship. Bottom line is this. God crafted the sexual relationship as a gift 
for his people. That gift is best used when it's used within the boundaries that he has give, given to us. Let's stand for a closing prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you in Christ's name. We thank you, Father, for your goodness to us, for your grace. Lord, um, it's a hard message, and, and there are some who probably are frustrated, some who may be thankful. Uh, so many things that could be said or not said. But Father God, I pray that you would empower us to value our sexuality as the gift that you intended for it to be. In Jesus' name, amen.